Hi, I'm Dave Raquel, Director of Sales at Paradigm. Welcome to The Big Picture. Policy reverting. So the obvious trade is always the expensive one to This carry. whole peak inflation, peak rates narrative, peak Fed, which we've if been talking about. So it's an expensive place to find out. Crypto ball, uh, a potentially fatal place to yeah, find the, out. The crypto option markets are definitely showing some signs of life. Hi guys, welcome to The Big Picture. My name is Joe Cruy at Paradigm in the Weeds around everything crypto ball markets. Joined here by my macro all-star co-host, David Brickell, as well as Neil Patel and Nick Trelesky, who run the Crypto Derivatives Desk at DRW. You know, this is going to be a really exciting conversation around something that we really haven't discussed on this channel before, and that is the CME Crypto Derivative Offering. But before we, we begin, please hit that like and subscribe button. really helps us as we continue to build this brand and this channel to become the go-to source for insights around crypto derivatives. But before we, be we begin, Nick and Neil, if you guys can just give a quick background for our viewers, how you guys ended up at DRW and then ended up pivoting to pioneering this crypto derivative space. Sure. Thanks for uh, having us on. Um, I'm a, one of many DRW lifers, been with the firm since 2006, got my start in rates, stayed on that desk for 14 years. And then when COVID hit, CME launched CME, uh, the Bitcoin futures and options, and we decided to get involved into the vol space, um, being that we already had a large um, OTC spot desk. So it was a natural fit. Um, it was a lot of growing pains. As you can imagine, it was very slow to start. Um, you have the CME OI chart, and you can see um, as recently as Q4 of last year, the open interest was only 400 million, and um, it really started to kind of uptick um, Q1 of this year as we saw a lot of people looking to onshore, and we saw a lot of people prefer the safety uh, of a regulated and compliant exchange. So we saw the CME OI um, hit about 2 billion in Q1 and early Q2. Um, but yeah, we've been in the crypto space for about three years now, and um, Nick and I are running the CME and bilateral trading desk. Hey guys, um, yeah, so pretty similar to Neil. Um, I started at DRW straight out of college. Um, was also on the rates desk, so did uh, overnight trading, um, covering London hours, and uh, did market making and rates. Um, yeah, with the pandemic, um, after CME launched their product, we um, started the the crypto options market making desk um you know this space has been growing a lot and been focused on that ever since all right awesome yeah thanks for that intro guys so yeah this is going to be a pretty informative conversation for our viewers around cme crypto derivatives and to be honest selfishly myself and david as well like as you know naturally on paradigm our focus has kind of been around like other venues so so really grateful to have you guys here and you know, I think to start kind of, Neil, as you alluded to, you know, in 2023, we saw this significant surge in uh, CME BTC futures and, and open interest, which I think logically, you know, makes a lot of sense in a in a post FTX world where you're naturally going to see this capital flight to quality to trade against exchanges that aren't necessarily financial black boxes or, you know, have something else to lose with, you know, other product offerings of, you know, going down in their crypto business. So looking at this chart, you know, volumes in December were extremely low in the immediate aftermath of FTX. And of course, you had the seasonality effect as well, you know, due to holidays. But as people came back to put money to work into the new year, especially due to this rally, you know, the volumes and open and interest immediately covered. So I, I guess, can you like 
speak a little bit more to this sort of flight to quality that you guys have seen in the crypto derivative space, not, not only to CME, but I mean, also into the bilateral business. Obviously, DRW has been been around for a long time, has a stalwart balance sheet, has been, you know, you know has a very solid reputation. So how are users, you know, into 2023 really starting to think harder about managing their counterparty risk and kind of what is your pitch around that? Sure. So one of the main considerations to take into account with CME is it is completely agnostic of crypto. A lot of the offshore changes would be, um, wouldn't exist if Bitcoin hit zero, whereas CME wouldn't bat an eye. So if you really need to hedge downside exposure, puts or short deltas, um, CME is the safest place to do it. And it is the venue of choice during any sort of um, uh, crypto bear market. We saw front month um, basis flip from positive 10% to negative 10% um, during the FTX crisis as CME was the only safe place to actually put on short delta plays. So that was a catalyst um, for a lot of people preferring the CME. Um, it's also just a regulated compliant exchange and they also recently lowered their margin, which helped kind of bring on some of the counterparties that thought the margin was a little bit too high. Um, it's down to about 24%, so it's still higher than some of the offshore venues, but people are gladly willing to pay that, you know, extra four, 10% margin to have the safety of the CME. Right. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And, you know, other, other venues, we really don't see, you know, too much put pieing. And I, I guess that might, might make sense, right? You know, you buy a five, five Delta, 10 Delta put, well, how, how confident can you be that you you know, are going to get paid on that. And, and David, I'm going to bring you into the conversation here. You know, you are our boots on the ground, so to speak, <laughs> with prospective paradigm customers. And I'm curious to hear how you you're, you have heard, seen your prospecting conversations evolve. Like I would imagine in the FTX aftermath, a lot of questions around CME as counterparty risk came into greater focus. And, and David, now that we're well into Q2, like, would you say that interest has continued to be sustained? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, to, to Neil's point, I, I think post FTX, um, you know, everyone was looking and thinking, uh, you know, deeply about counterparty risk, um, and, and obviously CME is, is a place to to kind of trade safely. The big the big drawback has been around uh, around margin, uh, which in, in in many cases was prohibitive, um, and then also also the the, the co the, the tech connectivity um as well you know when people are set up on other venues um not always easy to pivot um but yeah i i think i think definitely um you know we're still in a world where counterparty risk is is pretty key to people so looking at either other venues like cme or, or even you know uh, around other other kind of ways of managing that that counterparty risk um i i definitely feel if you look at some of the sort of larger institutions and um and particularly those from TradFi moving into the space, um CME is definitely something that they're 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 kind of keen on um and looking at. And, and it kind of they've got the economies of scale and scope as well that kind of that integrates quite nicely into into their like current business models and, and they get the kind of some of the cross margining benefits from that as well. Um so I mean I, and actually I, I was interested to to ask from you, Neil, like over this this year have you seen the the kind of makeup of of the sort of client base that sort of trading with you guys via cme change much at all 
Yeah, so some of the crypto native funds that were originally trading offshore have um, had internal um, dialogue where they needed to um, trade on a regulated and compliant um, exchange that offer, you know, that does some sort of KYC AML um, compliance. So we've seen um, US-based crypto funds essentially uh, prefer that venue and some of them make the switch over. A lot of people were unaware of the type of liquidity on CME and um, the liquidity has really improved over the last six to 12 months. Um, you know, you can see one year out options, two to three vols wide for good size. So similar to what other venues are offering. Um, and then, um, like I mentioned earlier, the downside buyer, and we're not talking about 25 Delta puts, we're talking about like, you know, end of the world puts, 10K puts, 15K puts. If you want to buy those, the CME um, is probably the only venue where you can feel comfortable buying those. So we, we see a big premium. Um, usually the ball surface is about, you know, two to three balls higher on CME relative relative to other venues. Um, but on the put wing, you know, you could see 10 to 20 ball premium on some of those low delta puts because it really is the only place to safely hedge downside risk. Yeah, that, that's interesting, especially you, you have, I guess, this, you know, disparity in the ball pricing on the downside between you know, because this is the venue that you go to if you need tail risk. I would imagine that also presents, you know, an opportunity for for underwriters as well, where, you know, potentially you guys, you know, have a position where you can, you know, you guys can facilitate those and uh, pretty competitively, you know, kind of just looking at it from a perspective, like, okay, if we're down there, I, I don't mind getting long down there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. we, for put sellers, it's definitely the best place to go because of that premium. Um, we think on on offshore venues, the the put skew doesn't kind of reflect reality because the demand isn't there to kind of put it into place. So um, we don't see we don't see that the demand is is going to change. It's going to be on CME and that premium. You know, I would say on average, it's probably about five to ten balls for that five delta put area. It's going to mm. kind of stay in that range. Wow, interesting. And and, um, I, I, and, and alternatively, oh yeah, no, it's fine. Alternatively, on the top side, um, so for calls, you do see most of the supply enter the market on uh, offshore venues because of the margin reasons that you talked about before. So when um, call overriders need to sell calls, they generally go to offshore venues because they can actually margin in native currency. And um, that's just something that the CME uh, doesn't ha like offer as a, as a benefit because you have to margin in dollars and it's expensive for firms that have, you know, quantities of ETH or BTC to borrow dollars to sell calls on top of that. So mm -hmm. um, we expect that to kind of change over the next uh, coming years because um, recently there was a <clears throat> uh, there was a CFTC declaration that um, CBOE Digital was granted margin on BTC and ETH futures. Uh, so margin in terms of posting underlying coin with a custodian to sell BTC and ETH futures. So Eventually, hopefully that flows into options and we can see some of the call, call overwriting flow right on the scene as well. Right. And in terms of, you know, the main audience for that, my my impression would be it would be perhaps, you know, the onshore miners who, you know, look at sort of yield enhancement strategies. But can we talk a little bit more about, I guess, miners in general and I guess this existing community of CME derivative users, not not ju not just the ones that have kind of you know capitulated a little bit and moved some risk off of other exchanges onto CME, but like 
have you guys been seeing, you know, miners real, for example, realizing they need to get their act together and, you know, actually, you know, sell forwards to hedge their exposure if they want to reduce the capital, the cost of capital of their businesses. Or I would also expect maybe some traditional macro hedge funds coming to the CME, either for the lever delta exposure or some of the basis plays that you guys are talking about. But curious to hear about that existing customer base. Yeah. Um, so for miners, um, we haven't seen too many miners arrive on the CME. Um, and, you know, there, it does make sense, especially in these kind of conditions when uh, hash rate continues to increase. Um, so it really push, pushes the pressure on margins as the price is kind of low. Um, so that's something that like we have been continuing to expect, but haven't seen a lot of, especially in the options space. Um, in the future space as possible, um, especially if they just go through a, you know, a a broker to hedge futures against their um, production. Um, but then we saw much more of the latter where it's like macro hedge funds or hedge funds in general. Maybe some of them are dipping their toes into being crypto. Hedge funds um, have been arriving on the CME and uh, you know putting on either highly levered beta plays or just like trying to trade macro risk around, um, around BTC and ETH. And at the same time, we've also seen some of the... Um, uh, vol premium selling as well. Um, there have been like new um, participants that have been selling vol premium and BTC and ETH on the CME, it, similar to like how other asset classes, how it's done in other asset classes where they just come in and sell strangles. So I've seen the kind Got of it. a bit of both. And to add to that, for miners and underwriters, margining, it all comes down to margining. And if they can't margin in coins, most of them are dollar light. So CME might not make sense for them. So that's why we see the vol surface significantly lower on exchanges where you can margin in coin or on bilateral where you can margin in coin versus the CME because most of the natural vol sellers need to be able to post coins instead of dollars. Got it. So so you would say that most of the onshore miners are, you know, trading in the in bilaterally uh because of this. Yeah, they definitely have a preference towards bilateral versus um CME. Right. That makes sense. So, you know, elephant in the room news flow last couple of days, which we don't really need to dive into here. But like in light of kind of the recent developments that we've seen with other onshore exchanges, like, like, what do you guys see? Do you guys foresee institutions kind of taking, you know, another step back to evaluate their options? And when do we see this? You know, it's the million dollar question, you know, this next wave of traditional institutional adoption. Well, the beauty of the CME is they don't touch any coins. Um, the ref, you know, they have the reference rate. The futures are financially settled. The options settle into the futures. So the CME doesn't touch any coins. So they are a little bit safer than other venues. Um, in terms of the SEC versus Coinbase lawsuit yesterday, um, very unfortunate for the industry. You know, Coinbase has been arguably the most compliant um, exchange in crypto by far. And um, to see them target that exchange is unfortunate and bad for the space. It's just bad for onboarding new users. And we continue to see a lot of just crypto native firms decide to essentially be based offshore. But we don't think it will have a significant effect um, on the CME in the short term. I think um, it's interesting you say that, Neil. And, and, and so, Joe, going back to earlier, the question around you know, conversations with clients. I think one one of the things that's really struck me since, uh, particularly since FTX, um, and in terms of institutional adoption, is I kind of think people understand that that what happened around FTX was a failure of a, a third party 
you know, um, and a bad actor within the space. I think people kind of get the value proposition for for, for Bitcoin and and sort of crypto generally. And it's all now about, um, it it is about counterparty risk and understanding understanding exactly the nature of those risks and, and where they are. So I, I think what's when people keep talking to me about or, or the, and conversations we have around, you know, what's going to be the effect of, you know, SEC, Coinbase. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's this, oh, shit, that's that's the end of crypto then. I, th- I think, again, it just drives the right. OK, well, what's the solution? And that's some, one of the things that's actually, um, you know, brought me a, a lot of sort of optimism around this space. In that the actual push has been okay. Well, where 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 do we trade, or, or what are the solutions to this? And and obviously CME w- w- would be one of those. Um, but I, I think people people kind of get it now. People kind of get the value proposition. Um, we just need to put the right infrastructure um, and and the right, I guess, regulatory um, frameworks within which to trade and be comfortable with trading. Yeah, and I think it's that's coming over the years um, as more firms develop uh, custody solutions and more, um, mm. you know, well-known firms like uh, Fidelity build out their custodian solutions, partner up with exchanges, um, hook up, you know, margin. Um, you know, as this infrastructure and Tradify gets built, it'll enable more trusted venues to kind of you know move value and allow hedging, allow trading in general. So. I think that's something that we're looking forward to um, and looking to support um, and, you know, hoping that the industry, you know, prevails until that, until then. So. Right. That makes sense. Definitely feels like, you know, especially with the, the range bound price action that we've seen. I mean, at least we've had some vol the past couple of days, but uh, you know, it could be a little bit more of a, a slow burn until we kind of see, you know, this break out of the range and hopefully to the upside. And, you know, David, I know you have some have some thoughts on this, you know, given macro developments of the past couple of days or so. So uh, do you want to get into it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, ha- happy um, happy to talk about that. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it's funny because I've been quite bearish sort of crypto and, and risk, I guess, broadly um, over the last few weeks, uh, anticipating this liquidity drain with the, with the debt ceiling lift. Um, We've been talking about that for a while now on on this show, um, and it feels now like the world and his dogs talking about this liquidity drain. Oh, oh, sorry, did I cut out there? Can you hear me? Am I back? Yeah, yep. uh, yeah, you're um, back now. Yeah, let's start over. Yeah, so so I, I've been talking for a while about this liquidity drain and um, that that we expect once the debt ceiling gets lifted. Um, and that was making me pretty sort of bearish, I guess, for for crypto in the short term, uh, given we we know particularly Bitcoin's a, a liquidity junkie. Um, it, it feels now like it's quite a common narrative um, out there. I'm surprised, you know, Uber drivers haven't been talking about this liquidity drain because uh, ev- everyone's kind of talking about it. Um, <laughs> but the, the 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 irony is, is you know, as we kind of there's two aspects to that, I guess. Um, in terms of there's, a, I think there's a mechanical aspect. I, I do think liquidity and how it sort of funnels its way through the financial system um, that, that, you know, mechanically can, can sort of drag us lower if, if we suck that out. But also there's quite a reflexive aspect as well. And I think particularly as it pertains to, to crypto. And I'm kind of thinking now, like if, if that is such a common story, um, maybe the impact of that reflexivity is kind of diminished 
And I, I certainly feel that's why Bitcoin hasn't joined in the, the tech party um, that we've seen over the last few weeks. Because um, if you're looking at NASDAQ, you're kind of thinking Bitcoin should be ramping up. And yet we haven't joined in that. Uh, and I think it's in anticipation of this liquidity drain. So there's part of me that's thinking that maybe we see a, a sort of buy the rumor, sell the fact type uh, redux in terms of how that's going to pan out. Um, th this chart we got up here, you know, net dollar liquidity, uh, I think this is the one to, to watch. Um, as you can see, actually, um, the liquidity has actually been climbing over, over the last sort of month or so. Um, and that's been a function of the quantitative tightening being offset by the TGA drawdown. Now, obviously, the, the big worry now is that... Yep. Hey, yep. David, can I just stop you for a second? Uh, yeah, it seems like somebody... Yeah, Neil, I think uh, it's your Slack. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. saw your message, Neil. Okay. Yeah, it's just going. Yeah, it's just going. Yeah, it's Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. That... All good? All good, all good. Yeah. Uh, go on, David. Sorry. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll just cut it out. Um, cut it out. It's easy. Yeah, so so the looking at that chart and um and liquidity. So liquidity dollar liquidity has actually been improving over the last um last sort of few weeks as the TGA drawdown um has been offsetting the, the quantitative tightening. Now the the worry is is that green that green line in the bottom channel absolutely collapses um as they rebuild the TGA. But there are there are potential offsets to that. Um, so, I mean, we've already had like 170 billion issued this week, um, in bills that's kind of been digested. Okay. Um, and the potential, the more, the more that that issuance is, is, uh, via bills, the more digestible that is and potentially is offset by the, uh, reverse repo that's parked at the fed. So it's, it's going to be key for me to keep an eye on that chart there, um, to see, does that green line, does does the dollar liquidity absolutely collapse? In which case, that's going to weigh quite heavily on, on Bitcoin. Um, but there, there are, I say, there are offsets. And from a global liquidity perspective, um, you know, there, there's offsets. And one of those that I'm looking at um, is China. Um, you know, China seems to be struggling now with, with uh, a, a, a slowdown. Uh, obviously, the currency is under a lot of pressure right now. Um, and interestingly, they're not, they're not intervening to slow that currency uh, depreciation. So it kind of tells me that China is quite worried about this slowdown. We had trade data today, which was pretty awful, uh, declining exports, declining imports. Um, so sort of China feels like they, they, they want the currency weaker to export their way out and likely a prime in the liquidity pump. Uh, PBOC putting some pressure on, on banks to, to cut uh, lending rates. So, so we, we might well have, for all this fear about liquidity drain, pretty big offsets, be it from the US itself, if, if it's all bill issuance and, and the RRP actually uh, fund some of this, and then also the potential for um, China to come in. And then, and then the other chart I was looking at earlier um, and we were discussing um, is the move index. Um, so when, when I think as well about things that are going to drive liquidity, um, which is quite a broad, um, a, a broad thing to try and measure. Um, the, the, move, the move index, so this is the index of bond volatility. Now, th this is pretty important in terms of, um, you know, the more volatile sort of bonds are and, and, and treasuries are, um, the more difficult it is to take leverage and what have you. So, so bond volatility coming lower is actually pretty good for actually greasing the, the sort of wheels of, of the system um, and allowing leverage and which also allow liquidity. So, so I'm looking at this and uh, 
this for me sort of looks pretty good for risk actually so if you see the move index coming lower it, it, it tends to all go pretty well for for risk the vix as we've seen is is what on a 13 handle or something now so so for all this it's insane thing um I mean, I mean partly it feels like there's a lot just this kind of general apathy in markets even though nasdaq's been sort of pumping away um but look the, the sort of broad risk environment into this liquidity drain looks pretty good um now again just mechanically does it start to weigh over the coming weeks i'm just wondering if given how anticipated it is um it becomes a bit of a damp squib and given these offsets that actually we could be setting ourselves up now for a ramp to the upside and then in in light of the the uh the, the issues we've seen this week with, with the sec and around coinbase and, and binance you know you, you kind of really feel that we should have sold off more heavily and we haven't and we've been sort of in this range for for bitcoin and, and eth for for some time now and the flush out that we saw particularly on the binance news was you know from what we're used to historically was pretty weak i thought um and i i think that's partly reflective of uh the lack of leverage in the system i don't think anyone's kind of no one's leveraged long i think position generally is pretty light um I think as well, given given some of the issues with offshore exchanges, exchanges, it's um it's a lot more difficult to short these markets now. So when I think of past liquidation periods, it's come because there's a been a lot of leverage in the system that's been absolutely flushed out, and b uh, you know you know you've had false liquidations with bankruptcies and what have you, and people that just have to sell their Bitcoin um as as they're kind of coming out of business. So in the absence of that, it's not obvious to me what actually sort of drives us you know materially lower um and i actually think it looks quite constructive yeah i i think that i think that makes sense yeah i mean like even i'm just i'm just looking at this the top part of this chart and it's like damn it looks like a pretty nasty head and shoulders pattern and you know one metric that i kind of follow closely is you know the 200 week moving average which is around like 26 100 and i think we've tested it you know you kind of see this range here um you know here where we kind of tested that you know three or four separate times where it was just like damn if we kind of break below you know the neckline was kind of right at this 200 week moving average and if we broke lower well we could fill the gap all the way back down to 22 21 but the fact that i mean even yesterday you know we, we i mean we're down to 25 700 or so and then we just kind of really bounced through it again it, it kind of seems like we're in a place in this market where like i mean how much bad news have has crypto had you know, over the past few months, yet look at the price, right? And it seems like every new piece of news flow that is negative for the space that comes in is just having a more muted reaction. So for me, like that's a pretty strong bullish symbol uh, signal there. But like Nick, Neil, curious to kind of hear what you guys think around the more like medium term, you know, short to medium term trajectory. Are we going to stay range bound or is there a possibility? Well, we'll also as well, just, yeah. so, um, just as you go to answer that as well, and, and perhaps to tie in with that, what, what I'd be interested in is, is because over the last couple of days, we've not seen a material rush to pull on downside, um, you know, in, in light of those news. Now, it could be the, the fact, as we mentioned earlier, in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the reasons why people might not do that on offshore exchanges. So just interested as well, whether, you know, you actually saw a, a, a a significant pickup in in downside uh, interest over the last couple of days. Sure. Yeah, I'll try to address that. Um yeah, so 
I think, well, to start, you, you were mentioning that, like, we, you know, given how much NASDAQ is up and how um, how rates are doing, you know, we kind of expected uh, if you saw someone did, like, a model where, you know, they just used, uh, like, NASDAQ gold and rates to kind of predict where Bitcoin should be as, like, a, like a four-factor model. Um, so, like, that would have indicated that Bitcoin should have been higher, but, you know, right now it's, you know, kind of firmly below 30K. Um you know, not going to really say any opinions on that, but, um, you know, that's definitely part of the reason, part of the reason that would, that has to do with that is obviously all the regulatory overhead that has been coming out this year, um, that combined with like supply from, you know, everyone keeps talking about the Gox supply or the, um, announced U S Marshall service supply as well. Um, so people are being cautious. There is not a lot, uh, of leverage that we see, um, in the system. Like there's, you know, Vol is very low. There's a lot of call overwriting going on. Um, it's just like a natural uh, tendency of risk markets. I mean, NASDAQ vol was around like 33 at the beginning of the year. Um, NASDAQ is now up 30% and the implied vol there is like 18 right now. Um, you know, similar uh, topic with Bitcoin and ETH. They're both up like 50, 60% on the year. Um, and their implied vol is like at all time lows. Um, lower than it was at any point during the uh, bull market. Um, you know, that's just uh, kind of the nature of risk markets. And, you know, naturally, Bitcoin and ETH are still uh, risk assets. So when when the assets go up that much, you know, that leads to a lot of people who are long to sell calls to overwrite it. And that, then the natural risk is to the downside. Um, so uh, we have seen some people take stabs at this implied vol. Um, uh, you know, here and there, but it's still pretty muted because I think people have been kind of demoralized by how tight this range has been. So no one is willing to really stick their neck out there, but, you know, small tactical plays here and there potentially, but yeah, nothing, nothing too inspiring. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, even what we're, what we're seeing is like, I mean, we're not really seeing those big, uh, you know, BTC upside call buying that that we were seeing earlier in the year but rather kind of like smaller sort of tactical plays where we see this like crazy spot down vol down like i mean even two days ago right when btc was down like five or six percent right like the august you know fixed strikes were like lower right it's it's like pretty it's just pretty crazy right so we're kind of what we've been seeing is kind of like you know the smaller sort of tactical plays where it's just like damn vol is so low that's just gonna you know, Delta play to, to top of the range, you know, back to like 28, 29, but like nothing sexy or exciting, you know, beyond that. How about you, Neil? Yeah, to talk about the price action a bit, I think what was the catalyst for BTC from 20K to up to 31K was the regional banking crisis. Um, we saw big rallies right after, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate, and there was a bit of diminishing returns. And it was basically the first time ever that Bitcoin had an inverse relationship with the regional bank ETF, KRE. Um, that has flipped back to positive. So in the end, Bitcoin is a risk asset and it is going to correlate with the broader market. Um, so I think that regional banking story is basically over and you're not seeing banking crises lead to um, Bitcoin rallies anymore. In terms of the vol reaction, I think the underwriter supply has just overwhelmed market makers. So there's very little room for appreciation. They're kind of selling um, options at mid or on the first uptick just to kind of lighten their theta bill and um, doesn't have room to breathe. It doesn't have room to grow. The, the underwriter flow is just the largest flow in the space. So that's been a reason for not having any sort of ball reaction on this move, but surprising to us nonetheless. 
think as well, um, like when when I think of the macro, not not to hammer this point too much, but um, we are we are in this change in macro regime, um, where we're going from the this sharp Fed tightening cycle to now the pause and the eventually the cuts, but but we've gone from a pause to now a skip. Um, and we're just unable to really embrace a new macro regime quite fully yet. Uh, we, we, I think the market's comfortable with that. We're no longer in this this aggressive hike cycle, and it's coming to an end. But we've just got no clarity over when that end hits. I think if we, if I look back, we came into the new year with the market starting to price the end of the hike cycle. Um, you know, started to price some aggressive cuts into the curve as well. Um, and and then the data's kind of stayed resilient. The Fed have kind of okay, yeah, we're going to pause now. We're going to skip. So no, no one's been able to embrace a new regime, and I, I just think we're in this kind of no man's land um, as we say transition from one regime to the to the next. So my 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 assumption is that we are going to start to see the data start to to sort of fall away, inflation starts to fall away, so that the Fed sort of fully go pause, and then the markets can then start to play that and know the regime we're in. Right now, we're just in this uncertain, you know, are we going to see more hikes? Are we not? And and the market doesn't really know what to do with it. And every conversation I have with clients at the moment, they're just really lacking conviction in, in and across asset as well, not not just within crypto. Some of the macro guys, you know, not sure, you know, where, where this kind of goes or or they, they kind of feel, okay, we, we, we're moving towards this pause. We, we're more bullish, say, the top side in Bitcoin, it's just about timing that um, when, when when's go time for the next leg higher and now it kind of becomes all right it's q3 or it's q4 and it just keeps getting pushed out and meantime if you're trying to put on these longs to play that then you, you're just kind of bleeding theta and and it becomes a painful trade to sit in yeah i mean yeah it's, it's been really tough to nail this uh, macro regime um you know it's kind of it got kind of to- everything got kind of tossed to the side with uh, the banking crisis, and even right now, I mean, the markets are still pricing in potentially like one more rate hike and in, uh, in the summer. Um, you know, inflation has been persistent. It's it's been sticky in certain places and in other places like commodities. It's like showing that it's actually coming down. Um, so it's very um, difficult, you know, for people. To, I mean, even, even the employment numbers have been coming out like. We, the economists have not been able to nail like you know a downturn in employment um every every single employment uh announcement has been like a complete um you know whiff on their end so it's i think it's just been a really tricky environment um as this economy comes out of this like post stimulus world um and uh yeah it's hard for people to you know put on like a crazy risk play one way or the other because you know if if another um emergent like with another emergence of inflation like we're gonna have to keep hiking um we might have to pause and wait for a while or we might have to like start emergency cuts like it's no one knows what's gonna happen so it's just like it's uh the, the pricing is uh, just kind of flatlining at this point yeah for sure uh, i think as well for me that's that's the biggest risk to this market is that <laughs> ironically if the data keeps coming in or if the data comes in pretty strong and remains resilient and inflation higher if we start pricing in a higher terminal fed rate um i don't know towards seven percent or so then i just think that's that's the thing that would would really hit risk and, and probably bitcoin and take us lower i don't see that's not my that's not my base case but i think for me that that's the sort of biggest risk out there at the moment that's going to like materially take us lower and, and unwind all, all the good work we've done throughout so far in 2023 
Yeah, that would help the uh, bank, the banking crisis at all, a terminal rate of seven. So I think the Fed is definitely incentivized to pause for the next meeting. I think it's about a 30% chance of a hike at the next meeting, but they do not want to um, further worsen banks' balance sheets, which a rate hike would do so. Yeah, and and we're still seeing um, some pretty lumpy deposit outflows on an unadjusted basis i I don't actually know how you adjust deposit outflows um surely outflows are outflows but the the adjusted outflows look okay but actually on an unadjusted basis we're still seeing constant deposit outflows and that'll be particularly interesting given this treasury issuance where we see bank reserves um fall quite heavily over the next few weeks and then all of a sudden we could be back into a um uh, you know more banking issues because i i don't think they've gone away because the factors that that drove the deposit outflows and this deposit walk, you know, is the fact that Fed rates are simply too high for for these markets to handle and for banks to handle. So the money's going to keep leaving in search of higher yields. Banks can't materially sort of jack up their their deposit rates, um, you know, otherwise they'll lose profitability. So I still think we've got those risks bubbling in the background, and it do, it does feel a little bit like this calm before the storm, um, and you know, everything in my my sort of 20 years of, of experience trading you know we, we we do feel like a coil spring at the moment in terms of volatility and um you know it's often surprising what sparks it but there, there's certainly we can see things out there that could spark some volatility over the next few weeks all right awesome well we're we are at the 37 minute mark so i think uh i think we leave it at that that was a super insightful conversation you know especially around like cme stuff that you know david and i are not necessarily, you know, touching every day. And I, I think for our viewers as well, kind of getting a sense of, you know, what traditional institutions are doing and what, what, how the flows there kind of compare to other venues is, is really just awesome insight. So, and as well as your macro takes, you know, giving you guys, I think you guys are former rates guys, right? Yeah. Right. So, right. So, I mean, yeah, thanks. Thanks for all the, all the insights here. Really, really enjoyed the conversation and uh, we'll speak soon.